This episode of the LRB podcast is part of our ongoing occasional collaboration with Talking Politics, a weekly podcast with David Runciman. You can find Talking Politics in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I'm delighted that we're joined by John Lanchester and uh, we've also got Helen Thompson here. And this is a joint episode that we're doing with the London Review of Books. We do a few of these. It's great to have John here because John has written in the LRB about pretty much all the things that we're interested in on this podcast, money and technology and politics and power. We're going to touch base with a few things that John has written over the past few years, actually, in the LRB. And we'll post links to those pieces if people want to read up on them afterwards. We're going to start by talking about banks, because one of the things that John does is he translates from the world of the bankers to the world of the rest of us what some of them are actually thinking. This week, there's been another, I don't know, we'll ask John in a second, big, maybe not so big scandal involving LIBOR and the possibility that the Bank of England was implicated in the LIBOR fixing. And John wrote about that a few years ago. But a broader question to start with, how are the bankers feeling post-Brexit, post-Trump, about a world in which politics has, I imagine for some of them, gone mad. Do they feel implicated? I doubt it. I mean, I should start by saying bankers in the strict sense, I don't know very many of them anymore because they stopped talking to me. And it's the thing Michael Lewis said somewhere that, you know, if, if the banks think they have nothing to hide, they certainly don't behave like it. And one of the things that's happened is that all the channels of communication that were around in kind of 2010 have sealed up and people are incredibly close-mouthed. If you're not an insider, they, they won't talk. That doesn't go for the whole of finance, by the way. There are lots of people in other areas who talk very freely, but banks, narrowly defined, have really clammed up. But they were talking to you after 2008 when you'd think that they might feel a little anxious. Was it kind of therapy they needed someone to hear their side of the story? Uh, partly, I think they were interested in the kind of technicalities of how it had happened. I think that a lot of bankers also felt that you know consumer borrowing had gone out of control and that was one of the triggers so that the kind of lines of blame you know as where well, we were to blame too but i think the big shift since 2010 is the credit crunch turned into the great recession and it was clear that a lot of people got really going to be struggling for a long time i think that's the thing that's changed the mood in banks and if you talk to broadcast journalists it's impossible to get financial insiders to appear on you know things like newsnight question time things like that they just won't do it and there's clearly been a kind of dictat or just perhaps it's just a kind of collective choice that nothing good will come of uh, speaking up and defending what's happened and explaining it in public the slightly sinister thing about that is that it implies they think they can get they can get all the things they want in private and so that doesn't even then include a private chat maybe with you or someone like you off the record trying to put their side of it no i mean seriously you know people i know quite well after several drinks would say don't ask me about the euro, I can't talk about it. Seriously. But more, more generally, more broadly in the world of you know, finance broadly defined, because I think that's one of the things that we sometimes think finance is just banking, and actually it's really, really not. And a lot of the other bits of finance are no one's more critical of banking than some of the other people who work in the city. I mean, because nobody sees it closer, nobody sees it more clearly for what it is. And in that world, I think there is... A mixture of anxieties, really. You know, some people thinking that it's as it were not sustainable, some people thinking that the bad thing has already happened, and some people fearing, you know, the next the next plot twist. What is the bad thing that they think has happened? 
I think for some of them it's Brexit. Mind you, I know quite a few city people who are in favour of Brexit. I think that there's fear about the next thing, which in this context means Europe. And the Euro, specifically. And the Euro. I think the other thing, though, is, is that they have got some good news out of Trump, and that is the prospect of higher American interest rates. And so long as that is on the cards and the Fed is saying it's going to raise rates several times during the course of the year, that's good news for banks. It's rather difficult for banks to make profits at the moment in the ways that they were prior to the crash when interest rates are as low as they are. I really agree. And the combination of higher interest rates and deregulation, which is... I mean, but Trump's sending such such mixed signals. He's going talking about deregulation. On the other hand, he talks a bit on the, on the campaign trail about reinstituting the separation between retail investment banks, Glass-Steagall Act. But, you know, the combination of, as you say, increased interest rates, making it easy for banks to make money, plus deregulation, and it's no wonder the big investment banks' shares are up like a rocket since the inauguration. I think it's 25 30% across the board. And when we talk about these bad things, there's Brexit, there's Trump, and you can imagine how, if you ran a big bank, big financial institution, you would be unsettled by that. But the euro is on a completely different scale. The thought that there might be something coming down the line, which isn't just a political earthquake, it just directly impacts the world that they depend on. Are they seriously scared about that? I mean, there was real fear about that. And again, you've written about it, 2011, 2012. You could smell the fear. Is it still there, just buried away? I think the problem with the the eurozone is that in the absence of growth, you know, if you have this gigantic mountain of debt, which lots of euro countries do, uh, in the absence of growth, that debt just sits there and there's no convincing mechanism for how it's going to go away. When you have debt-to-GDP ratios at the levels they are, with 140% in Greece, Italy's not much far behind. If your economy's growing nicely in the way that, you know, Britain's debt-to-GDP ratio, I think it's over 200% at the end of the Second World War, and we never paid it down, because it, but it didn't matter, because the economy grew so much that became a small number. The United States never paid off its war debt in that sense. It just the economy grew so much it didn't matter. In the absence of growth, that really, really matters. And I think the... You know, the problem is, what's the mechanism which solves that? Euro economies magically starting to grow or something else. And while that is still there, it is a little bit like having a large, unstable cliff-like structure that's sort of just looming there, waiting to slip at any moment. And you either talk about it or you just don't. You know, things like the Greek debt. It's all very well saying that, you know, they owe the money, they should repay it, which is, broadly speaking, the German attitude that, you know, the law says. But I actually don't know anybody involved in in any aspect of finance and economics literally not a single person who thinks that greek greece can repay its debts so over 140 percent of gdp the economy's been shrinking it's just not going to happen so that is a state of suspended animation and crisis now what and there doesn't really seem to be a conversation about now what and it's the expectations we've been doing this podcast talking politics for seven months now i think and People have been talking a lot about politics over that period, and the focus is on the next political event. Whereas over the preceding period, there was much more focus on what some of the economic or financial causes of that might be. Do you think some of this focus on politics is a distraction given the giant cliff-like structure that's hovering over Europe? Or you could say it's the other way around, that in a sense the economics was a distraction from the politics before I think you know the politics has come into focus because of Brexit and Trump and suddenly people realising that voters aren't going to be infinitely tolerant of a kind of democratic failure and that they have no democratic levers in their hands. So if you give them one and say, pull this for change, they, they will pull it. 
And so I think it's no surprise that the, the focus is on politics. I remember about 18 months ago, someone pointing out that the odds on, I think, Corbyn winning the election, Trump winning, Brexit happening, Le Pen winning in France, there was actually a fifth one, I can't remember the fifth one. Uh, it might have been Greece exiting the EU, and they were all about 20%. That was the the spread betting odds. And whoever it was pointed out, that, well, if you have five things that are 20%, one of them is going to happen. And in fact, as it actually turns out, two of them have already happened. And there may be more, but I think that's the sense in which that the politics feel very precarious because a, a lot of these things are thinkable. You know, I, I don't share the general view that Le Pen is certain to lose. I think that's well over 20% as a probability of her winning. And I think there are other things that could happen with Greek default, with with the Italian elections. There are just a lot of things that could go quite badly wrong. And in a way, the unlikely thing, obviously, on those kinds of odds, is two to three years in which things carry on as they are, and the, even from this point. Uh, yeah, and the mood music does seem a bit like that, that you're starting to get this sense that, but actually partly because of Brexit, Brexit looks quite ugly from a continental European perspective, and that that's causing voters to pull back and Macron will beat Le Pen... Merkel will win again. Five Star Movement's already subsiding in the polls in Italy. And the Dutch election, which is held up as this kind of, oh, it's all going to be fine. The Dutch have exactly, done you know, what after, they normally do. Exactly. And, um, I mean, despite all the things that he had to do to get elected in terms of, you know, Islam baiting and all that. And so I think it's a slight premature sense that oh, we're fine, the grown-up's going to be in charge again. I think the other part of this story is, is that is the monetary side of it. It's kind of a tussle between what's going on in politics, what's going on in the economy, and what the central banks are doing in response to it. And actually, central banks are keeping this show on the road. They have been keeping on this show on the road since 2008. The way that the ECB is now keeping the show on the road is actually, in one sense, it's actually making the fault lines in the Eurozone worse because it's increasing German antagonism towards the European Central Bank and to some extent towards the Monetary Union project more generally. But at the same time, if this European Central Bank doesn't carry on doing what it's doing, then Italy in particular is sunk. So you have this thing that can be kept going. It may be able to be kept going for quite some time because there are the devices and the central banks keep doing quantitative easing in particular and having interest rates where they where they do. But actually, nobody's really got any idea how long it can last. So it could be a long time. It could blow up tomorrow. And I think one of the things with these... I don't think they quite are black swan events, but let's call them that for shorthand of the ones that you were just talking about, John, is, is each one of those may have the potential actually to be the trigger that unravels the whole quantitative easing bomb bubble. Nobody actually knows. I agree. And, and but that's such an odd thing, isn't it, that we're in this period where we don't know and there's been this yeah. huge experiment. I, th- I think the, the creation of the euro has a claim to be the biggest economic experiment there's ever been in the history of the world. But I think that the uh, quantitative easing running this long as you know experimental new technique that only really far gone economics wonks had heard of 10 years ago and is now the staple of policy all across the developed world and i think no one knows how to stop it and no one knows what it'll look like when it does stop and these things of crazy low interest rates or even in some cases negative interest rates as you're saying all across again across the developed world and in europe nobody quite knows how to get out of that because every single time there's a whisper about inflation picking up and the interest rates raising there's a, five seconds later there's some news that causes them to say oh actually no this week next week sometime never it's one problem for the fed i mean that they can say things like okay we're going to raise interest rates four times in a year and then like they said last year and then then they don't do it but they've kind of made some start they have raised interest rates twice 
now but the ecb can't it doesn't seem to me that they can because the moment they really start trying to normalize monetary policy then they screw italy over because italy can't have do you say 140 percent debt to gdp without this being in place which is why draghi has been so keen on it so we're going to keep going with this and at the same time it's going to keep causing all these tensions some point you say it's got to blow up but then if it blows up then everything really does fall apart for the eurozone so it can't blow up and then we're kind of stuck it It can't blow up so well i think that's there's something buketian about it you know can't go on will go on you know um it's just very difficult to see see the exit because the sort of optimistic notion that europe is going to grow out of it just doesn't seem likely and one of the unreal things about contemporary politics is waiting for the political event that will trigger real change but it's never sort of consciously framed as that by the politicians so which will be the election that will blow the whole thing up or put us in a completely different direction but it's never who's the candidate who's offering an alternative vision it's just what will be this random accidental event that will make the whole thing go poof and that's a different kind of politics from conventional democratic politics where you you choose this option or the riskier option, because someone's putting forward the riskier option. Yes, and isn't it part of the sort of strangeness of this moment historically that that all sorts of things that were politics now, and obviously still are politics, but but in terms of the way that the debate is shaped, are regarded as not the economy and the operation of the economy is somehow not a political question. It's been removed to a separate sphere. So I, I noticed this. I mentioned it in Brexit. Please, you know, younger people don't talking to me, they seem to perceive themselves living in an economic system more than they live in a political one. And the things they're worried about are economic choices, economic opportunities. And they don't feel much agency in the political sphere in relation to those those things. As, you know, Who's in power, Labour, the Tories? Well, who's going to help me put a deposit on a house? Who's going to help me pay off my student debt? Who's going to help me get a job? And that's replicated across societies in general, that a lot of the things that electorates felt they had control over things like economic policy, yeah, sure, but also immigration, you know, national security questions, they're now not inside the political debate. And that was one of the issues in the in Brexit, that all these things that had been squarely at the heart of democratic policies are now just, they're parked somewhere else. So I mentioned it, and I want to go back to it, but then we can move on again. The story this week, because it relates to central banks, that the Bank of England might itself have been involved in some sense in what maybe wasn't the biggest of all of the scandals, but close to the biggest of all the scandals, the libel-fixing scandal, which saw, and one of the ones that actually saw some people jailed, which is true of very little else since 2008. Do you have any sense of whether this that there is a bigger story here, that the Bank of England might itself be complicit? I think it possibly looks worse than it is. One of the odd things about libel is there's something um, like Lewis Carrollish about it, that you're asking people, if you were going to lend money to this institution, what would that hypothetical rate be? Which is fine on a sunny day when you are actually lending money and banks are settling these sums on a daily basis. But in times of crisis, if you're not lending money, which is what happened during the credit crunch, was obviously a thing no one foresaw, but there was actually no lending and as Mervyn King very dryly said you know the libel rate becomes instead the rate at which banks won't lend money to each other and actually it becomes fictional it becomes a notional thing they weren't lending that's what the credit crunch was the the credit was all locked up because everyone was was so frightened so there was this weird moment when libel became a largely notional thing and that's the point at which the Bank of England allegedly 
was leaning on people to come up with low, you know, as opposed to the terrifying fact that no one's lending at all, just as it were, say something and make it sound not too bad. I do think that, obviously, they oughtn't to have done that. It's against all the rules and all that. I think it's different from the actions in the libel scandal 1.0, which is actually criminal conspiracy. You have, you know, pockets of criminal conspiracy inside the banks. Yeah, and I think the, the Bank of England panicking and saying, you know, for God's sake, don't say anything too terrifying, is a bit different from, in effect, criminal gangs rigging prices. Yeah, I think it's a difference between fixing profits and fixing reporting. And the first is a lot worse than the second. The Panorama programme that made this claim seemed to be wanting to say two things. It was a little confused. And I found it confusing. It was fueled by moral indignation because that's how news is reported now. So one was on behalf of the little guys at the banks who were made to carry the can. So it was this sort of heartrending story of these relatively junior people who are now in jail where their bosses got away with it. And then they tried to run that with another story, which is, and maybe it wasn't just the banks themselves, maybe there was some complicity on the part of the authorities too. So the first one, I mean, that still does have some teeth in political terms that, as I said at the start of this part of the conversation, was one of the few scandals which saw some people going to jail, but not the people that we want to put in jail. Yes, I agree. And it, you know, it's true that it was people a long way down the chain. I, I'd love to know, and I suspect we never will know, how it is that the banks design these structures to stop people going to jail, because it's clearly an intentional thing. And if you look at the um, Select Committee on Banking's report, the Andrew Tirrey Committee in Parliament, you know, they clearly got very, very exercised about the fact that it was just impossible to find any accountability. And you know, there's a dead body, there's a murder weapon, but there's no fingerprints on it. And that's one of their recommendations was that there always be a named executive made responsible for anything that happens. You can believe in unicorns and that that's an accident of the way banking's designed, but I'm sure it's not. That They've studied quite carefully uh, ways of making sure that there's nobody directly accountable except for underlings. One of the few countries where they have put people in jail is in Iceland. And it was a local cop got given the brief, a rural policeman given this brief to... Finance. And he um, did it the way that they roll up drug gangs, that you catch someone on the street, you threaten them with all sorts of things, and in return they roll on the person, the next one up the chain, then you do the same thing and you roll it all the way up the chain. And that's how bankers in Iceland ended in jail. Obviously it's easier to say that than it is actually to do it, but it's a well-known technique in policing, that's just how it works. So uh, it's interesting, and I strongly suspect no accident that that technique in the case of the banking thing just didn't work. But, you know, if you look at the uh, comparison, the savings and loan scandal in America in the 1980s, 1,100 bank executives went to jail for that. And the the credit crunch and the associated things, which are scandals on... I mean, I know it costs more money, but it was also kind of criminal wrongdoing, in my view, on an equivalent or bigger scale. Nobody's gone to jail. But I think in the US case, is, is it was a political decision by the Obama administration, by his attorney general, that there wasn't going to be any prosecutions. Regardless of whether or not they had the policing means or not, the Obama administration did not want criminal action against bankers. Because? I mean, Obama had been the candidate in 2008 who had raised at that point more money from Wall Street than any other candidate in presidential history. He wasn't a candidate that was opposed in any meaningful sense to Wall Street interests. I mean, that's an extraordinary tr- trick to have missed. I mean, in, in 2008, when the, the, you know, the mood and opportunity was there for real structural reform on Wall Street. There's a book just out, uh, or just about to come out, I've got the proof, I haven't started reading it yet, but there's a very good Amer- American reporter called Jesse Eisenberg, um, who's written a book called The Chicken Shit Club, and it, it's about 
The subtitle is The Failure to Prosecute Wall Street in the Aftermath of the Crash. There's an also as well, I think it came out in the John Podesta email leaks. I can't, it was one of those leaks. It was either the, it must have been the Podesta ones and not the, um, the Colin Powell ones, where essentially Obama was letting someone in one of the big investment banks effectively draw up the list of who he wanted in his cabinet. So I think that the idea that, again, Obama was someone who was ever going to have a political confrontation with Wall Street doesn't really stand up. But some of the prosecutors go off and run with that on their own. You know, people, The New York guy, yeah. Yeah, financial, yeah career, political careers have been made in prosecuting those things. And I think one of the difficulties was that a lot of it wasn't illegal, you know, that the goalposts had so been changed... You know, think about the savings and loan scandals in the early 80s. And since then, we had 30 years of regulatory travel in the direction of deregularization, liberalization, all that. And quite a lot of things that you, you intuitively feel are wrong and have to be illegal aren't. I mean, I was very struck when I was researching the credit crunch, going to um, Baltimore in Maryland. And um, there, you know, some of the criminal stories I heard about firsthand were when people were signing mortgage loans, they'd go to the meeting. And they didn't have to have a lawyer present. It's not a requirement under Maryland law. And the mortgage broker or the person from the mortgage company would say, look, I know we said we were going to get you a loan at 6%, but I have a problem at the bank. It's just a paperwork thing. The loan in this paperwork, it says 12%, but don't worry, we can fix it. So that's what you're going to sign. So we can fix it later. I assure you it'll be fine. And and this is you know, a stack of 300 pieces of paper 300 you know massive legal document and you know you you want to own your home today don't you i mean you'd like to own your first home you'd like to come out of this room owning your first home wouldn't you so we'll just sign and go on. now that is flatly untrue the thing about the mortgage rate being variable you can own it today. you can't and to to my mind that that's a criminal act but actually under maryland law it isn't it's a caveat emptor it's the responsibility of the person signing the paper to know what they're signing. When you've gone that far down that road of the insiders who know what they're doing, having the upper hand on everyone else, all sorts of things that are, you know, to us, intuitively wrong and intuitively ought to illegal suddenly aren't. What about the Wells Fargo examples, though, of the, the people making up bank accounts for customers? Is that possibly under any state's law would have been legal? No. I don't I, think anybody's been prosecuted for that. I haven't followed the detail on that, so... One of the things about it, you have clear evidence of wrongdoing in that you can see the fake accounts, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was a thing where, again, there's no fingerprints on the murder weapon, you can't trace the chain of accountability. To lock people up, that's the thing you need. You need um, not to know that the institution did bad things, but you actually have to find age actors who acted wrong. And it's by the way, it's one of the things that's very skewed in the law, that corporations have the privileges of individuals because you know, they have things about in terms of reputation and intellectual property and things like that. They have the privilege of individuals, but they don't have the responsibilities. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Helen, can I ask you about something that you tweeted about this week, which is Jamie Dimon, who's kind of the emblematic, can we treat him as the emblematic Wall Street banker, the guy who runs JP Morgan in every sense. And you were tweeting about, I think it was his report, the shareholders. shareholders' report, which had lots of interesting things in it. But one of the things that you picked up on was him saying that the world is in a mess. And one of the reasons the world is in a mess is that the United States has spent what, what, trillions, was, was trillions on its wars. And though he's not making a judgment about this, he just would like to point out that this is money that might have been better spent elsewhere. And as you put it, the bankers are now pushing back against 
imperial overstretch as well and looking for people to blame. Yeah, it was quite striking. I think what he said in the shareholders report was, look, all this money's been spent on these failed wars in the Middle East and meanwhile America's infrastructure is rotting away. I think he makes the point that, I think I'm right in saying this, that the Americans haven't built a new airport for 30 years. Uh, and presumably in China, yeah. new airports yeah, being built like, every absolutely. Two weeks. This was a compa- I'm not going to get the numbers right, but the, he he then gave a comparison with China, where the number is obviously any number of airports have been built in whatever the time period he was making the um, comparison. But it was interesting because in a way it was kind of Trump's. Well, what I was going to say, it sounds pretty Trump. At least Trump on the campaign trail yeah. was very much into not the, Trump this week. No, <laughs> was very much into look, our infrastructure is in a terrible state, and yet we're wasting all this money on these walls. In the Middle East, but you know, as uh, President Trump, as opposed to candidate Trump, has found, then the American national security state is rather good at making sure that the question can get reframed very quickly into like, well, there's a real world of geopolitics out there, and you pay attention to it. And when things happen and America doesn't respond, then credibility is lost. Because it is one of the ways in which Trump and Brexit are clearly different. I mean, here we have Jamie Dimon talking about a kind of Trumpian worldview that they would never, would they? I mean, I know you say some of them are pro-Brexit, but there would never be that sense that a leading banker would come out and basically stand behind the populist position. No, they're pretty careful about it. Though I was hoping someone would use the P word. I mean, that's an interesting thing in itself, isn't it? an interesting turn in what, what's happened. Because when you were asking earlier about what bankers, what financiers think has happened, I think one of the things that's actually kind of cutting off debate and reflection is just the word populist. Because like the thing, um, was it Godwin's Law, the thing about the f- first person to mention the Holocaust loses an argument? There's a, an equivalent thing there with the first person... Unless you're Ken Livingston. Unless you're Ken Livingston. Well, no, he's losing the argument pretty, mm. pretty well. Okay, yeah, he is. By all means, let us not mention Sean Spicer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the first person to use the word populist is certain they've won the argument. And I think there is a thing in elite circles and in finance circles that as soon as you can say that a train of thought or argument is populist you've won the debate and you can move on to the next thing I think it's become an over convenient tool for in a sense dismissing politics populist is the thing that you know the, the kinds of policies that people would want like building roads I think the other thing though is interesting I agree on the on the populism issue is, is that in this shareholders report Jamie Dimon had been one of the people who'd been of the bankers the most vocal during the Brexit referendum campaign of saying you know this is going to be terrible and JP Morgan will have to move I don't think he actually threatened to move the whole of the London office abroad but he certainly made it sound like there would be pretty acute job losses as a consequence of Brexit in this shareholders report it says maybe we'll move a few hundred people to some desks somewhere else on the continent I mean, he's very dismissive about the risks of Brexit certainly compared to some of the other things that he'd got to say and so you sometimes get the senses as though that the the bankers wanted to use the language of populism to defend what are their interests in these issues but actually their deep concerns do not lie with things like Brexit and even possibly they don't lie with things like Trump they lie in the vulnerability of the whole financial system Uh, and that's what really concerns them and the the other thing that came out in his shareholders report, which I think ties to this, is, is kind of like saying, look, there's something wrong with the American economy when we look at the Labour participation rate, when we look at how few people in the, in historical terms anyway, in sort of men from ages of about 18 to 55 are actually um, working, that there is no way out of the problems in the way that you were talking about earlier, John, the debt problems, so long as we have a growth problem, and so long as we have this low employment rate, effectively we have a growth problem. So in one sense they've got a discourse around 
the political challenges of the, the immediate moment, but actually their concerns are much more long-term than that. Their deep concerns are much more long-term than that. I agree with that. I think you also see it in the, you know, Davos every year, that ridiculous cavalcade. They have a list of top ten, top ten things to worry about, and uh, you know, it used to be climate change, and now it's usually inequality. No, someone joked that actually the number one threat actually for those people like that should be Jerry Hall. Um, when they say threatened by inequality, they don't quite what, mean what we're threatened by. You know, we we don't like the idea of a growing gap between rich and poor because it's bad for our societies, and for them it's bad for their balance sheets. It might look like the same mental frame, but actually it's not, and they're worried about inequality feeding into in quotes populism, and that then that feeding into things that are bad bad for the banks, bad for because as you say, it's completely true. The system is fragile, and nobody knows it better than them. You know, the the equity ratios are are still too thin, and we're one nasty accident away from another banking crisis. So, John, since we've got you here, you also write quite a lot about technology as a user and as a sort of connoisseur of some of it. Is that fair to say? I don't know about connoisseur, um, but <laughs> you enjoy uh, some of it. I'm still interested in it. Partly, um, it comes with the territory writing novels that you're interested almost by definition you're interested in the new thing last week on this podcast we talked about power and silicon valley and it was i think the consensus view from the people we spoke to last week was pretty gloomy they're genuinely the people who know that world well quite scared about the levels of there's inequality but also unaccountable power and the concentrations of power that come with concentrations of wealth but not just with wealth the way that some individuals dominate corporate hierarchies dominate the way that people think who work for them so just as a sort of straight comparison here are you more worried by unaccountable power in silicon valley or in the world of finance at the moment well i think trouble from finance is more imminent in the sense that the you know banks could go broke again but in the big picture scheme of things i'm much more worried about the technology side because it reaches everywhere you know, financial crises, we've lived through them before, we'll live through them again. But the thing about the technology is that, just as I was saying about a new thing, you know, it's new. And the thing that I'd add to the point that your contributors were making about unaccountability is the thing about them not actually knowing what they're doing. Because the driving force behind a lot of this stuff is that they can. That's the thing about Page and Brendan Zuckerberg. I thought The Social Network was a good movie, but it was very misleading in the way it attributed a motive to Zuckerberg. You know, Zuckerberg is... He's slightly chippy social outsider who's avenged, you know, wants to get back with his old girlfriend and feels marginalised by the posh people at Harvard. That's completely untrue about who he is. What drives him is that he can do it. Therefore, we, let's build it. That is driving things towards neural networks, self-driving cars, artificial intelligence. And as you said on the thing, the, the thing isn't that, you know, the robot's going to come alive and take over the world. It's just that they're already, in effect, making decisions. They don't need to be sentient to make decisions. Driving cars there's you know software flying planes it's that kind of thing that they have effective agency already and we're careening down a road that no one knows where it's going and they're fine with that they think it's exciting that they don't know where they're going to use the language that you you were using earlier the euro is the biggest monetary experiment in history but that pales compared to what this is but it's not an experiment like that i mean as you just described it at least with the euro it's a big gamble, but we have a sense of what it would be for it to work and what it would be for it to fail. This is on a different scale, the way it's shaping how we live. No one has any idea what it would be for this to work or what it would be for this to fail, because it's just, we do the next thing that we're able to do. Yes, and I think, you know, we can be certain if we try to pick what the most worrying consequence would be, we'd get it wrong. I think we, we know that. 
But just one example, think about things like the self-driving cars. We may have to wait till 2030 until we're for someone was saying just the other day. But that's astonishingly soon. OK, imagine self-driving cars are here. You go back to that thing that Henry Ford and the head of the United Auto Workers Union, the exchange that they, they famously had when Ford showed in his new production line, said, who's going to pay your union dues now? To which the head of the UAE replied, well, who's going to buy your cars? And the thing, so you have this paradise of self-driving transport where cars are ferrying our children to school so we can interact with them less than we already do and people can go, go out to the rural pub and get completely hammered and you know, it'll be like, like it used to be before the drink driving laws and it'll be, you know, all of which is paradise. I'm, obviously, I agree with all of that. But the trouble is you have millions and millions of jobs that are dependent on driving. That is the skill that a lot of people have that employs them, that supports their families, that props up whole sectors of the economy and you've effectively just willed them away. How do those people get a self-driving car? How does he pay for it? I mean, that's just one actually relatively small example of fundamental restructuring of social relations and society just because we've got a cool new toy for driving vehicles around. So the last question, picking up on things that you've written about in the LRB, how are you getting on with your Amazon Echo? Uh, well, I just got really, really annoyed. As I mentioned in that piece, in the first place, I owned two, once I bought to establish that it could work, and then the other I bought for a relative... And the whole point of this was to get it to play audiobooks for my relative. My relative has macular degeneration, she's losing her sight. And there are special audiobooks read for the blind, but she doesn't like the way they're read. She likes the, the commercial ones. Mine does everything you're meant to do. You can order from Amazon for it, order an Uber, do mass sums, play Radio 4, play podcasts, probably including this one, get it to tell you a very unfunny joke. And hers does all those things too, except the one thing it wouldn't do was play audiobooks. So literally, the, there are, I think, 2,000 different apps. They call them skills to make it more annoying. Every single one on both of them works. So it's 3,999 of the available skills work, except wouldn't play the audiobook. It's that thing about the way that technology kind of works and then doesn't. So I spent non-metaphorically hours on the phone to tech support with Amazon and Audible, they're actually the same company, Amazon owns Audible, but they never really admit that, bouncing backwards and forwards. And the first hour of every conversation was just trying to get them to believe me. So after an hour, they actually believe that you have this thing, you've set it up correctly, and it won't talk to them. They still couldn't fix it. So rinse and repeat. I do this a few times. I'm going to say homicidal frenzy. Um, you know, it's lucky we have strong gun control laws because, <laughs> you know, anything could have happened. And then uh, day before yesterday, I was over at my mother-in-law's and uh, sort of her Alexa was unplugged. So she's only been using it to, put, to play the radio. Plugged it back in, I thought... And I was just going out the door, I thought, OK, I'll just... I'll see. And asked it, and it, and it started working. So clearly what had happened is they'd have enough people complain that someone had looked into it at the other end, and they've fixed whatever the software... But that's the interesting thing about accountability... You know, there's nothing you can do. These things cost whatever they cost, 150 quid. And it's been sitting, I gave it to her for Christmas, so this is nearly four months. And there's absolutely nothing anyone can do until suddenly it works. Call me old-fashioned, but as a basis for a kind of whole new vision of society, I don't really, don't really like that, you know. The computer says no. It is that kind of good emperor thing, isn't it? Which is, if the emperor is nice to you, then it will be fine. But you're entirely... Depend on their whims. Yeah, exactly. And that thing about the, the Kafkaesque aspect of being in these loops, you know, because the, the people you're talking to have set scripts, and you do go down this kind of vortex of having the same conversation word for word, you know, 10 or 20 times, and there's nothing either of you can do. 
And you're both real people. And you're both still real just. people. Just. <laughs> so that's a glimpse. But anyway, the audiobook works now. So she's listening to uh, Swing Time by Zadie Smith. Thank you very much to Helen and to John. John's most recent book is How to Speak Money, which is very useful for understanding a lot of these issues. If you follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore, we'll link to some of the articles of John's that we talked about in this week's episode. And we touched on France, but we didn't really get into it. Next week, we will get right into it because the first round is coming up. And frankly, we still have absolutely no idea who the final two are going to be. So we will speculate. Join us next week for that. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Mm-hmm.